Well, go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 14. 2 Kings chapter 14. We are not going to be studying the book of 2 Kings. We are going to be studying the book of Jonah for the next several weeks. But we have to begin in uh, the book of 2 Kings, which is our first mention of Jonah. Why Jonah? Uh, why, why dive into Jonah? Well, we studied Revelation right before uh, the COVID stuff hit. And after that happened, we, we took a couple weeks off to just do some uh, topical sermons on anxiety, on fear, on trusting the Lord. And then it was Easter, and we did a Resurrection Sunday message from 1 Corinthians 15, where we have nothing to fear in death, because we have our resurrected Savior as our hope in life and in death. And then we dove into the book of Habakkuk, a minor prophet, and we spent time in Habakkuk because Habakkuk is a lament, and I wanted us to learn as a church how to lament in the midst of sorrow and suffering. Uh, Habakkuk is a minor prophet that really deals with prophecy. It deals with a lot of uh, conversation between the prophet and God and between God and the prophet. We learned so many amazing realities from that book, so many amazing truths that it was really hard to say goodbye to that book. That was just an amazing time. And then we just spent the last three weeks diving into the topic of the Trinity, just seeing God's love for us. And I really want to dive back into Revelation. I can't wait to do that. But we would be diving back in. We had just finished chapter 3 with the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. We'd be diving into chapter 4, which is the throne room of heaven. And all of the saints and all of the angels are praising the Lord, shaking the throne room of heaven. And I just thought, that can't be done over live stream, right? You need to be together as a church family to shake the library with our voices as we lift them to the Lord. So we're going to wait on Revelation. So I thought, what should we do? And we enjoyed our time in Habakkuk so much that I thought we should dive into another minor prophet. Jonah is a minor prophet. Jonah is a, a different minor prophet than Habakkuk because Habakkuk deals with a lot of prophecy. Jonah deals with a lot of narrative. In fact, there's very little prophecy in the book of Jonah. It's a lot of narrative. It's a story more than it is a prophecy. So I wanted to dive into this book because it's very familiar to us. And I believe that familiarity can breed not only contempt, but this sense of I already know it and I can move on to something else. I've already got the lesson from that, and I want to move on to something deeper. I believe there are hidden gems inside of Jonah that maybe you have never even seen before. I had never seen before as I was studying. So I'm excited to go through it. For this morning, I just want to set the stage. I want to give us a little bit of historical background, and then I want to give us reasons for why we should be studying this book, reasons for why we should dive in together and what we should be looking for as we dive in. This morning will be a little bit like uh, what my wife does on Wednesday nights. On Wednesday nights, she always cooks some dessert for our small group as we gather together. Usually, it's in some form of chocolate because that is my love language. So if it's chocolate, I love it no matter what it is. She purchased this uh, claim jumper, like mud pie, that uh, was supposed to last us probably for a week, and it lasted us one evening. Uh, because I just dove right into it and just kept going, and then there was no more pie. There was only a pan. And it was a very depressing moment, but that's what Habakkuk is for. I was able to lament, and here we are this morning. So what my wife will do, she'll cook. She'll make you know, brownies or cookies, and I'll be in my office. I'll be studying, and she will come into my office, and she will say, would you like to lick the batter, right? 
This is, this is some of the most romantic words. <laughs> Would you like to lick the batter? Sometimes she doesn't even give me the spatula. Sometimes she just gives me the bowl. Here you go. Enjoy. But I know as I'm going through licking the batter off of the spatula, trying to type out my sermon and just praising the Lord this whole time, God, thank you so much for your word. Yes, but for this chocolate, this is amazing. I know that this is only a foretaste of what's to come in these amazing cookies or brownies. And that's what I hope this morning will be like for us. This is kind of licking the batter. This is getting a taste. We're excited. Hopefully it will satisfy our souls. But we know there's more coming that I believe will change our lives if we would see what the scriptures are clearly teaching us in the book of Jonah. So let me pray, and then we will dive into just two main points this morning, the historical background of Jonah and then the reasons why we're studying the book together. So let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time. Father, we do come before you with great expectations of what you will teach us. We are familiar with the story. We are familiar with this narrative. We have grown up, many of us have grown up in church circles, even those of us who didn't, maybe outside of church, they still heard of the story of Jonah. And really the spotlight always falls on that fish that swallows him. And while that is miraculous, that's not even the best miracle in the book. So, Father, I pray that you would teach us, even today, that you would whet our appetite for what's to come, but that you would instruct our souls this morning with how to understand this book in light of who we are and in light of who you are. That we would see your holiness and your sovereignty, that we would see our sinfulness and our depravity, that we would see hope because of your grace and mercy. We, we read it earlier with the blind man saying, have mercy on me. And we, we saw last week that that is your disposition. You love to give mercy. You are gentle and lowly. You are humble in heart and you love to give mercy. And that's what we see here even in this book. You love to give mercy. That's a, a character that you are at the deepest part of who you are. So we want to cry out, have mercy on us. We sang it. Your mercy is greater. It's more than the darkness that surrounds us. It's more than the sin that is inside of us. Your mercy is greater than all of these things. I pray pray that your grace would be so on display in front of our eyes that we would be undone by what mercy does. And that we would see your character anew and afresh, even this morning, as we set the stage for studying this book together. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So, historical background. Let's just dive in a little bit to the historical background. It'll help with the setting of where this book is in the Bible, where it is even in relation to what we studied with Habakkuk. So, Jonah is a minor prophet. This series is kind of minor prophet with a major message, part two. We studied that with Habakkuk, and here we are again with another minor prophet. Not minor in its truth, but just minor in its size. So you have 12 of these minor prophets in the Bible. You have Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So 12 minor prophets. Jonah was written in the 8th century B.C. during the reign of a king named Jeroboam II, so about 793 to 753 B.C. He comes right before Amos and Hosea, 
right before Amos and Hosea, not in the Bible, but in the timeline, Hosea and Amos will prophesy after Jonah. They actually come up from the south into the north. Jonah lives in Israel, the ten northern tribes. Amos and Hosea live in Judah, the two southern tribes, and they're going to come up from the south to prophesy to the north. Whereas Habakkuk dealt with the south, right? Habakkuk dealt with Judah, those two tribes in the south that uh, Babylon would come in and deport. They would take them out. Uh, Whereas Habakkuk dealt with the south, Jonah deals with the north, with the ten northern tribes, typically referred to as Israel. And these ten northern tribes are always evil. They're always awful. There's never a godly king in the northern tribes. Jehu, you could kind of make a case for him being a godly king, but he's not even here during the time of Jonah, so we'll just throw him out. There's really no good king during the the reign of Israel, during those ten tribes as a nation. They're always detestable. They're doing terrible things. They're going back into idolatry, wicked forms of idolatry. And the king, actually, that's reigning during the time of Jonah speaking these prophetic words is a man by the name of Jeroboam. Now, if you remember Jeroboam, he's Jeroboam II. That's not his actual name. That's his title that he takes upon himself. And he takes it to himself because he wants to be remembered as a king similar to that of Jeroboam I. You remember Jeroboam I is the first king of the northern tribes. You remember we have Saul, first king of Israel, then David, second king. This is of everyone, a united kingdom. Saul's the first king of the united kingdom, then David, then Solomon. And after Solomon, his son Rehoboam decides to split the kingdom. He has the two, northern, or the two southern tribes, and then ten just leave. They say, we're out of here. We don't like you, Rehoboam. And so a man named Jeroboam takes over as king over those ten tribes in the north. And he brings back idol worship. He creates golden calves to remember the the idolatry back all the way in Exodus. So this king, Jeroboam II, says, I want to reign like that king. I want to be like that king. I want to be remembered like Jeroboam I. This is a wicked king. Syria and Assyria are countries that are surrounding Israel at this point. They're major powers, but they are weakening. And this enables Jeroboam to expand the borders of the northern tribes out into those uh, countries. This is actually what Jonah prophesies. This is why we need to start in 2 Kings. So if you are there, 2 Kings chapter 14, if you can read verse 25. 2 Kings 14, verse 25. Jeroboam restores the order, or the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord. So God had prophesied this was going to happen. Who did he prophesy through? He spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of Gath-Hefer. So this is Jonah's first prophecy. His first prophecy is this. Though you, ten northern tribes, are wicked tribes deserving of God's judgment, you have not repented, you deserve to be destroyed, God in his grace and mercy has said, he's not only going to not destroy you, he's going to expand your borders, he's going to give you more land, he's going to give you more territory, he's going to make you prosperous. How do you think the ten northern tribes would have received that prophecy from Jonah? Do you think that would make him very popular or not popular? That make him very popular, right? We can continue in our wickedness. God has mercy. We don't need to repent. 
and we still become prosperous. I think that we have to have that in the back of our minds when we read Jonah because his first prophecy was one of amazing prosperity even though Israel didn't repent. And he is loved by his nation. He is loved by his people because of giving this amazing prophecy. So God says it's going to happen. Jonah says this is what God has said. And God does just that through Jeroboam II, restores these borders to what they were originally. It's very interesting. Gath Heifer is a a little city. It shouldn't even really be called a city because it's just a a couple of huts that are gathered together just outside of Nazareth. So it's in Galilee, in the north. And you remember Nazareth itself is just a tiny little town, just a little cul-de-sac, just uh, a couple dozen people would have lived there during Jesus' day. And so Gath Heifer is a tiny, tiny place. Nobody's famous from there. Nobody comes from Gath Heifer. And then Jonah shows up. God uses him so mightily. It's very interesting in John chapter 7, we'll look at this another Sunday, but John chapter 7, the Pharisees are arguing that Jesus cannot be the Messiah. He cannot be a prophet, a godly teacher. And their argument is, he is from Nazareth in Galilee, and no prophet ever comes from Galilee. There's never been a prophet, they say. There's never been a prophet in the history of Israel who's come from Galilee. Well, time out. Jonah comes from Gath Heifer. Jonah comes from Galilee. Literally, he's right outside of Galilee. Why do the Pharisees not remember Jonah? Maybe they just don't want to remember Jonah because they want to condemn Jesus as a Galilean. Maybe they do remember Jonah, but they don't want to remember what he did. What he's most well-known for is not his prophecy in 2 Kings 14. What he's most well-known for is giving a message of hope, mercy, and grace to Gentiles who are completely undeserving of grace. And maybe that caused Jonah's Israelite brothers to say, he's not one of us. He's not one of ours. Nineveh, he's called to go to Nineveh. Jonah goes to Nineveh, which is an appalling city. It's the capital of Assyria, not Syria. I don't know why those two countries decided to name their names that way. We'll be Syria, we'll be Assyria. There must have been a fight over that. They decide we'll be these two names. So Assyria, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Damascus is the capital of Syria. Ultimately, Syria is destroyed, probably because Assyria says, you stole part of our name, we're going to destroy you, they take them out. Assyria grows. They are a despicable nation. Remember how Babylon grew? Nebuchadnezzar, remember this is Habakkuk, they're a violent people, they go in, they deport people, and they bring in their own people to the nation that they've just destroyed. They want to permeate that nation, that new country, with their own blood. Here, the Assyrians... They don't bring in their own people to a new country. They just go into a country and slaughter them as horrifically as possible. There's things that I've been reading in commentaries that I literally wouldn't be able to share here of what they have done to their people, uh, to their prisoners and their captives, because it's too graphic. They are known for appalling evil, depravity, wickedness, horrific, graphic destruction of their enemies. And ultimately... Assyria, you remember, is going to be used by God in 722 B.C. to come into those northern tribes and to take them out. Assyria is going to be used by God to take out the ten northern tribes. That's who Jonah is going to be speaking to. Now, who wrote this book? I believe it's Jonah. 
one of the main reasons why people don't believe that is he's speaking of himself in the third person, but that's okay. Other prophets do that. I believe Jonah wrote this, and I believe for a number of reasons Jonah wrote this book, and, and I want to save those reasons to the end because I believe that the reason why Jonah is writing is informative to us already today. The fact that he is writing this book will teach us something. So that's a little bit of historical background. Now, four reasons. Let's move on to the reasons why we are going to study this book together. Four reasons why we want to study this book. So we've already seen historical background. We've got our history lesson out of the way. Now we have four reasons why we want to study the book of Jonah together. Number one, reason number one, the splendor of the Bible. We want to study this book because of the splendor of the Bible. Jonah is amazing because the book of Jonah is in the Bible which is an amazing book. It's a book like no other book. It's a book written by God himself. This is not a book written by man. This is a book written by God. This is the only book that as you read it, it reads you. And therefore, as we dive into Jonah, we're going to see splendor and glory. It's going to read us. It's going to divide rightly our hearts. It's going to teach us things that maybe we never even saw about ourselves. I want us to study this book because we become so familiar with the narrative that we just tend to think, I've mined the depths of this book. I've gotten everything that I need to get out of this book, and I can move on to something else. Give me something deeper. Give me something else. But I want us to go slowly through this because I think as we see the splendor of the Bible as a whole, we'll see that in miniature form in Jonah. John Piper says, Raking is easy, but all you get is leaves. Digging is hard, but you might find a diamond. That's why we're going to dig. We're going to dig together into this book. From a literary standpoint, this book is stunning. There's so much humor in this book. There's irony for the purpose of beautiful poetic irony in this book. There are things that as we go through, you'll be able to see, hopefully we'll walk through it, even in Hebrew together, you'll be able to see this, the beauty that is found uh, literarily in this book. It divides perfectly into two sections. It's four chapters. Chapter one and two is the one, the first section. Chapter three and four is the second section. And it divides perfectly into those sections. And it divides perfectly there because of two phrases. It's the same phrase found two places. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. And that phrase is followed by three subsequent actions of Jonah. You always see in the first section, you see the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And then you see his response. You see the consequence of his response. And you see God's mercy in Jonah's reaction to it. Same thing in, in the second section, chapter 3 and 4, you see the word of the Lord came to Jonah, then you see Jonah's response to the word of the Lord, then you see the consequence of Jonah's response to the word of the Lord, and then you see Jonah's reaction to God's mercy. It's a beautiful book. It ends with a cliffhanger. It, it doesn't have any like resolution as a book. It ends with this amazing cliffhanger. One of the reasons why I think Jonah did write this book, it ends with this amazing cliffhanger. I don't know if you read uh, Choose Your Own Adventure books growing up, did you ever read Choose Your Own Adventure books? You'd read and it would give you an option of where you go. You go to this page if you want to choose this. Uh, you go, go through this cave and you get this page or go through uh, over this bridge and you go to this page and you just move all the way around this book and it gives you these crazy cool endings. This book is a kind of a Choose Your Own Adventure book. It ends and it says, what are you going to do? It's a cliffhanger to say, I, I want to ask you. God's telling us, Jonah's asking you, what are you going to do? From a narrative standpoint, the story is just gripping. It's different, like I said earlier, from Habakkuk, because Habakkuk is a prophecy. 
It's God speaking. It's Habakkuk speaking. Jonah is a story. It's mostly narrative. It's mostly story. It's just a gripping story. It's human. It's real. There's emotions that as we see Jonah going through it, we feel the emotions with him. And obviously, there's this incredible fish that swallows Jonah. This amazing, miraculously incredible, like truly incredible, unable to be believed. This story is incredible. Just, I kind of want to talk about the fish and then move on, because the fish isn't the center of the story. Uh, Did Jonah really get swallowed by a fish? Yes, it's in the Bible. Okay, we're done. Um, Did Jonah really get swallowed by a fish? Uh, Absolutely. And though that is miraculous, number one, there's way bigger miracles in the Bible, right? If you find it difficult to believe that Jonah was swallowed by a fish and survived for three days, then you're going to find it immensely more difficult to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That is the greatest miracle. You're going to find it immensely more difficult to believe that God created the world with just using his voice. But secondly, I would say that there's greater miracles even in Jonah than just Jonah being swallowed by a fish. There's greater miracles in this book. In fact, the point of Jonah is not this fish. That's one of the reasons why I do think that this is a real historical event, that Jonah actually did get swallowed by a fish. If Jonah wanted to make up being swallowed by a fish, if this were fiction, supernatural elements that are placed into fiction are normally spotlighted for a purpose, for a point, to show the grandeur and the fantasy of what's going on. But the fish that's mentioned here is mentioned in two brief verses with no descriptive details whatsoever. Jonah doesn't capitalize on the event at all. He just says, I was swallowed and spit out. That's it. It's reported just more as a simple fact of what happened. I I want us to see the greater miracles that are in this book than just Jonah being swallowed by a fish. That's an amazing miracle, yes. But there's greater miracles in this book than just that. So number one, I want us to study this book because of the splendor of the Bible. I, I hope and I pray that as we dive into this book, that you and I would say, wow, I did not know that was there. And it would create in us a hunger to dive into the rest of Scripture and dig in deeply to say, I want to go back to familiar passages that I could tell the story, but I didn't see the point. I didn't see the implication. I didn't see the purpose of that narrative. I pray that this would grow our appetite for our daily devotions. I pray this would grow our appetite for diving into the Word and diving into other books about the Bible. Number two, I want us to see the sovereignty of God. I want us to see the sovereignty of God. Though this book, the book of Jonah, is just 48 verses long, and it's so small, but it's so profound, we see within these 48 verses everything that you need to know in order to rightly think about life. It's kind of the podcast version of the entirety of God's revelation. And that starts with God being sovereign. God is holy, and he's sovereign, he is king, he is Lord, he is creator. As we dive into this, we're going to see him being in absolute control of all of creation. He makes a ship go where he wants a ship to go. He makes a storm go where he wants a storm to go. He makes a fish. He creates a fish for a purpose, and then he decides that purpose is done, and the fish goes away. He makes a plant grow overnight. He takes this worm This worm is an amazing worm. It's a singular worm in the Hebrew. So we think that it's actually this one worm that eats this enormous plant. 
God makes this worm and just says, go to town on that plant. God makes this wind out of nowhere. God says, here's a wind there. He does all these things inside of this book. He's absolutely in control of all of creation. He is sovereign. I think that we live far too often in a state of divine amnesia. We forget that God is in control, and we think we are. We walk about thinking, I'm kind of in control of this situation. I know God rules over all these things, but I'm really in control of this situation. And if we forget that God is sovereign, we inevitably insert ourselves into the position of sovereignty. We become sovereign in our lives. If we say, God, we know you're sovereign over the big things, but the little things I'll be sovereign over. Or God, we know you're sovereign over the little things, but the big things I'll be sovereign over. We forget that he's in control of all of those things, and therefore we insert ourselves into the position of sovereignty. That's not what we are supposed to do at all. Turn to 2 Corinthians, just really quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If we become absorbed with our own sense of sovereignty, we will start to live for ourselves. We will think that life's all about us. We rule, we grow, we do our own thing. We are our own masters. But that's the opposite of what the gospel is supposed to do in our hearts. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. Jesus died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. If you have died with Christ and have been raised with him, you are no longer supposed to live for yourself. You are not sovereign over your own life. You have given up that sovereignty to another. You have literally, Galatians 2.20 says, you've died with Christ. You have been hidden with Christ, Colossians 3 tells us. You are no longer your own. You've been bought with a price. Life is ultimately either going to be about you or all about God. It's all about you or all about God. And narratives like Jonah remind us who is really in control. We, we think we are. We sense the illusion of our control, but we are not really in control. And all of our attempts at our own autonomy, will inevitably come back to mock us. That's what we see in Jonah. When we think we know the right thing to do, and we are sovereign on our own, and we are autonomous to make our own decisions, those choices that we make will inevitably mock us on the back end. And ultimately, they will always end up serving God, the very God that we are trying to defy, just as Jonah is trying to defy. We are created to live for a sovereign God, not for ourselves. This book, I believe, asks us a question. Are you going to live for God's kingdom or, or for your kingdom? Are you going to live for something that's greater than you, that's bigger than you, or are you going to live for your own kingdom, for your own sense of I'm king over my own life? We're going to see beauty over the, the, the tiny decisions that are made. Jonah decides, I want to run away from God. But it's very interesting. How do you make decisions? Sometimes we make decisions by the open and closed door route, Right? If it's an open door, I'll just keep walking through it. Well, Jonah had an open door, right? He shows up at Joppa. He has a ship there that's ready to go to Tarshish, which is the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. He had open door after open door after open door. He thinks, this must be God's will for me. I've made a right decision. God, after all, doesn't want me to go to Nineveh. Even though he told me that he wanted me to go there, he doesn't. The way that he interpreted all of those different situations, open door, this leads me here, open door, this leads me here. Sometimes an open door shows you it's actually not God's will. 
But how we interpret our lives, which we do every day, we, we tend to interpret, we tend to live lives not based on the facts of what we're experiencing, but our interpretation of them. Instead of saying there's just a boat there that could take me away from where God wants me to go, Jonah maybe internalizes that and says, therefore, that must mean I can go, that God doesn't want me to go to Nineveh. The way that you interpret life will inform why you do what you do. And if, if it starts foundationally at the level of you are king, you are sovereign over your own life, you're going to interpret life very differently than if you say, God, you're in control. I, I am a citizen of your kingdom, and my life is all about living for you. So we see the splendor of the Bible. We see the sovereignty of God. Number three, uh, the third reason for studying this book is we will see on display the sinfulness of man. We will see on display the sinfulness of man. Right from the very beginning, God calls a prophet. A prophet. This man's job is to speak on God's behalf, and Jonah defies God. We tend to just gloss over it because we know the story. But we cannot get used to this kind of defiance. Jonah says, I don't want to do anything that God's telling me to do. I wish I were God in the place of God. I wish God were dead and I made the choice. That's why R.C. Sproul said that sin is just cosmic treason. It's just saying, God, I wish you were dead and I was on the throne because you're a terrible God and I'm a better sovereign. He goes southwest to Tarshish, which is the exact opposite of Assyria. Assyria is northeast, so he decides to go the exact opposite way. We also see Jonah getting really angry at God. I think if we're honest, we've been there before. We've gotten angry at God. And we see Jonah getting angry at God, but it's very interesting because though Jonah is an angry man, we see his heart on display. Why is he angry? He's angry because God's exercise of his sovereignty does not meet with Jonah's approval. Jonah says, I don't like how you're ruling. I could rule better than you. Jonah wants a God of his own making. A God who would smite bad people, bless good people. However, Jonah defines bad and good. That's what Jonah wants. I make the rules of who's good, who's bad, who receives blessing, who receives cursing. And when God shows up, when the true God shows up, not a God of Jonah's own making, it infuriates Jonah because Jonah cannot reconcile God's mercy and God's justice. Very similar to Habakkuk. Habakkuk's question was, God, why aren't you judging why are you withholding judgment? Jonah's question is, why are you giving mercy? Why are you allowing mercy? Habakkuk says, why do you withhold judgment? Jonah says, why do you give freely mercy and grace? I think as we go through this book, we are going to be confronted by the depravity of our own sinfulness in the way that we judge others. We think of others the same way that Jonah thinks of the Ninevites. We do. We think of other people as deserving of blessing because of who they are and what they do or deserving of cursing because of who they are and what they do. We will see our own depravity on display. We'll see Jonah's hatred for the Ninevites uh, through d several different lenses, several different grids. One of them that's absolutely appropriate and necessary in the church as a whole is his view of the Ninevites as a different ethnic group and therefore Part of his reason for not wanting to go there is his own racism in his own, his own heart. We'll see that on display, and the world needs to hear this, and the world needs to see this. We need to hear this. We need to grow in these areas. Jonah also looked down on others. 
not only for their ethnicity, but for their sin. I'm better than you. Even as he's defying God, I'm better than you, Nineveh. We'll see his own hypocrisy. We'll see his pride. And I believe that God, in his grace and mercy, is just going to take this book, and it's going to be a mirror to our own souls. If you would let it, Jonah will just be a mirror to show you your own soul. You'll see a need for Jesus and his mercy like never before as we stare at this amazing book. We all see it around us today. The world is dramatically broken by sin at the individual level, at the corporate level, at the national level. Broken by sin, devastated by sin. And yet, when it comes to the way that we interact with each other, I think functionally we don't really believe in the theology of sin. I know we confess it. It's our confessional theology. But functionally, we don't really believe in it. When somebody comes to you and they confront you in sin, they see something in you. They ask, maybe you need to change this. How often is our response instant defense? Instantaneous, wait, you don't know me. How dare you? You said that in the wrong way. You you don't know what I'm going through. It's because we don't functionally believe in the doctrine of sin. If we functionally believed it, we would be saying, I, I know I have sin so much so I don't even see it. It's a log in my eye, and I need your help. Would you please show me? Please show me my own sin. The reality is I want us to see our sinfulness on display. We'll see it in this book. It'll point a spotlight to our own hearts. I want us to see it because it will be impossible. It's impossible for you to minimize your own sin without devaluing God's grace. If you minimize your own sin, you will necessarily devalue God's grace. The only people who get excited about grace are those who are quick to name themselves as sinners. Those are the only people who are excited about God being a God of grace and a God of mercy. So if you don't name yourself as a sinner, you won't think that you really need Jesus. And if you think that you don't really need Jesus, you're going to find yourself just like Jonah, running as far away in the opposite direction of him. And yet his grace will chase you down. That's the fourth reason why I want to study this book. Number one, to see the splendor of the Bible. Number two, to see the sovereignty of God. Number three, to see the sinfulness of man. And number four, to see the shocking grace of God. The absolutely shocking grace of God. This is the whole theme of this book. This is the whole theme of the Bible. This is the beautiful reality of this book, that God's grace entering into human hearts brings about transformation. We don't want to just grow in our knowledge. We want to be transformed. That's the purpose of Jonah. That's the purpose of the Bible. And so we will see transforming grace on a level that maybe we've never seen before. God gives grace, not only to the Ninevites, that's miraculous enough, but he gives grace to a defiant prophet over and over and over again. He gives second chance, third chance, fourth chance in this tiny little book of 48 verses. That's why this book is so much more than just a children's story. You'll find it in kids' books, and the kids love the fish. Every miracle that happened in the Bible is true. Therefore, every miracle that happens in Jonah is true. But as I said earlier, the greatest miracle in the book of Jonah is not the fish. The greatest miracle in the book of Jonah is the grace of God changing human hearts, saving sinful people. And you're going to find, as you study through this, as we go through this book together, you will find something about God that Jonah, a prophet, did not want to believe. You're going to see something about God that Jonah says, I don't want to believe that's true. 
And it's the reality that God shows himself to be more gracious and merciful than Jonah could have ever imagined. And Jonah says, that's too much. Too much grace, too much mercy. And we do the exact same thing. We are Jonah. We are Jonah. The point of the book of Jonah is the point of the whole Bible. God is a holy God, sovereign over all. We in our sinfulness have run away from him, have chosen cosmic treason to say, I wish you were dead, I want to be king, I want to be God. And yet, instead of just saying, fine, you heap judgment upon yourself, I'll just let you go. Instead of doing that, he chases us down with grace. He will not relent in his graciousness to chase us down. And my friends, this morning, God's doing that. God's chasing you down in grace and mercy even through the, the very beginning, the introduction of this book, he is saying to us this morning, there is grace to be found if you would call yourself what you truly are, a sinner who wishes that they were God and God was not. He has an offer to you, just that we saw last week, an offer of grace and pardon. Take my yoke upon you. It's easy. It's light. It's kind. I want to give you mercy and I want to take your sin. That's the point of the book of Jonah. And I think if we understood that, that would change our relationship with each other as a church family. That would also change our relationship with those outside of our church family. I don't know if you would be honest enough to answer this, but if, is there anybody so that has so wronged you in your life? Is there anyone in your life that has so wronged you that you would say, never with your lips, of course not, but in your heart of hearts, you would say, hell was made for people like that. Hell was made for people like that. Is there anyone in your life who has so wronged you that you would say, hell was made for them? To be like God is to go to the most undeserving people and chase them down with grace. Chase them down with grace. God's mercy is on display in this book as he desires to save people who are justly doomed for eternal punishment. And God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I wish that they would turn. And one of the amazing blessings of this book is we are reminded that God will do whatever it takes to get that message out. Even when God tells Jonah, hey, go, and he doesn't go, God says, you're going to go. I'm going to get you to go. He will get that message out because he's a God of love who wants to share grace with even the worst of sinners. This short account will show us so much about the heart of man. It's very interesting. In the first half of the book, Jonah is exactly like that younger brother in the prodigal son story. You remember the younger brother who says, uh, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want your inheritance now, and I'm leaving. I'm out of here. And he spends it on terrible, sinful pleasures, right? That's Jonah in the first half of this book. Jonah just says, I'm out of here. God, I don't like you. I'm out of here. Don't want to see you again. And the second half of the book is not Jonah coming home with a repentant heart like the younger brother. The second half of the book, Jonah's the older brother. Jonah's that older brother condemning the younger brother. You remember the older brother in the prodigal son? That's the whole point of the prodigal son's story. The older brother who says, Dad, how dare you throw a party and give grace to the younger brother, my younger brother, who so defied you and rebelled against you, he deserves your judgment. And then he says, look at me. I've never neglected a command of yours. I've always done everything you've told me to do. 
and you never blessed me with a young goat so I could party with my friends. Jonah goes from being the younger brother to the older brother in just the span of 48 verses. And brothers and sisters, I think as we read through this, you and I will see we do the same thing. We begin the day in the morning as younger brothers, and we end the night as older brothers. We flip-flop back and forth constantly. And so we're going to see the shocking grace of God that hunts down not only younger brother rebels, but also hypocritical, prideful older brothers who think they don't even need God's grace because they're good enough. So I said earlier that Jonah wrote it, but I didn't give you reasons why. As we wrap up our morning this morning, here's some reasons why I think Jonah wrote this book. There's several, but they just go to the cliffhanger at the end. We're going to read through this book. Jonah ends with a cliffhanger. He just ends the book. We're never told how the prophet responds to God's final appeal. But I think we know how God, God's prophet responds. I think we know because we know the story as a whole. The only way that we know this story is because Jonah told this story. Jonah told it to others. What kind of a man would let the world see what a fool they are? I mean, this, Jonah is never in a good light in this book. He never does anything that's really worthy of us going, man, praise the Lord for evidence of grace in this man's life. He's a mess. What kind of man would say, I'm fine with being a mess? Show it to the world. <laughs> Show it to millions of people, billions of people. Record it for all of eternity. The only person who would be happy to do that would be someone who had become so joyfully secure in God's love and grace that they say, I know I'm a failure. Throw my sin out for everybody to see because I know you've covered it and you've thrown it away as far as the east is from the west. Only someone who believed that he was simultaneously sinful but completely accepted by God could write a book like this. So in short, the only person who could write this book is someone who has found in the gospel of grace the very power and heart of God. That's why I think Jonah wrote it. And if God's grace can change Jonah, it can change anyone. Even us. It can change us. Why does grace change us? It changes us because as we see our sinfulness and we see our need for judgment, our deserving of judgment, and then we see God in his kindness relenting. We see the love that God has for us and we love him back. That's what 1 John says. We, we love you because you first loved us. You gave yourself for us. So are you quick, ready to admit that you are a sinner in need of grace. If you are, this book is going to shock you with the grace that God has. If you're not, you might find out you're a lot more like Jonah than you would want to be. As you say, I'm pretty good, and others need to get their act together. John Bunyan, in Pilgrim's Progress, we read this in chapter 3 uh, of the Conscience book, but it was just too good to just skip and move on from. We had to go back to it. John Bunyan in The Pilgrim's Progress, telling of the story of Apollyon fighting Christian, that great enemy fighting Christian. 
Apollyon tells Christian all of the reasons why he will not be welcomed into the celestial city, into heaven. Christian, do you think that you're going to make it to heaven? Here's all the reasons why you're never going to get there. And he lists out all of his sins, all of his failings, all of his shortcomings, all the reasons why he deserves judgment and not heaven. And Christian responds, quote, all of this is true. And so much more that you've even failed to mention. But the prince whom I now serve and honor is merciful and is ready to forgive. He's ready to receive me. This gospel changes you when you realize that's who God is. He's not just waiting with his finger on the trigger and he can't wait to destroy you with judgment. No, he's a God who cannot wait to destroy you with his grace and envelop you with love and kindness. Bunyan, in his work, The Jerusalem Sinner Saved, said it this way. Satan is loath to part with a great sinner. What, my, true, my servant, quote he, my old servant, will thou forsake me now? Having so often sold thyself to me to work wickedness, will thou forsake me now? You horrible wretch. Do you not know? You have sinned yourself beyond the reach of grace. And do you now think you will find mercy? Art not thou a murderer, a thief, a harlot, a witch, a sinner of the greatest size? And dost thou look for mercy now? Dost thou think that Christ will foul his fingers with thee? It's enough to make angels blush, saith Satan to see so vile a one knock at heaven's gates for mercy. And will thou be so abominably bold to do it? Thus Satan dealt with me, says the great sinner, when I first came to Jesus Christ. So what did you reply? Why, I granted the whole charge to be true. And did you despair? No, saith he. I am Magdalene. I am Zacchaeus. I am the thief, I am the harlot, I am the publican, I am the prodigal, and I am even one of Christ's own murderers. Yes, I'm worse than all of these. And yet, God was so far off from rejecting of me, as I found afterwards, that there was music and dancing in his house for me and for joy that I was coming home to him. Thomas Goodwin says, what would keep someone from coming to Christ? If you know him to be this gracious, what would keep you from coming to him? And his answer, that which keeps men from coming to Christ is that they know not Jesus' mind and heart. The truth is he is more glad of us than we can be of him. He is the, the father of the prodigal was the forwarder of the two to that joyful meaning. Have you a mind he that came down from heaven, as he himself says in the text, to die for you, will meet you more than halfway, as the prodigal's father is said to do. Oh, therefore, come to him. If you knew his heart, you would come. The Christian life boils down to two simple steps. Step number one, go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Every day, every moment, go to Jesus. Step number two, see step one. Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Dan Ortland says this, and we'll close here. 
Whatever is crumbling all around you in your life, wherever you feel stuck, this remains undeflectable. God's heart for you, the real you, blemishes and all, is gentle and lowly. So go to him. Go to him. That place in your life where you feel most defeated, he is there. He lives there, right there. And his heart is for you, not on the other side of it, but in that darkness. He's gentle and lowly. Your anguish is his home. Go to him, for if you knew his heart, you would. We're going to study this book together to see the beauty of the Bible, the splendor of this book. We're going to see the sovereignty of God. We're going to see the sinfulness of man, and we will see the shocking grace of God. To that end, I want us to read this book. I want us to read Jonah together. 48 verses. Takes about six minutes. We'll read it together, and then we will sing in response to this magnificent book. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, because their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa. He found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. And there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. And the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. And they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down below into the hold of the ship, laid down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and he said, how is it that you're sleeping? Get up, call upon your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell to Jonah. They said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you from? He said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And the men became extremely frightened. And they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you? that the sea may become calm for us, for the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm had come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. So they called on the Lord, and they said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let this man, let us perish on account of this man's life. Don't Put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you please. So they pick up Jonah, and they threw him into the sea. And the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. And Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I call out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. 
and the current engulfed me, and all your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars were around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was exceedingly great city, a three days walk. And Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and he said, Yet forty days in Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. They called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. He laid aside his robe from him. He covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Don't let them eat or drink water. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked ways, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, was not this what, what I said while I was in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city, and he sat east of it. He made a shelter for himself. He sat under the shade until he could see what was going to happen to the city. So the Lord appointed a plant. It grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. And when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint. And he begged with all of his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? He said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. The Lord said, You had compassion on the plant, for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand, as well as many animals. 
Let's pray together. Father, thus reads the word of you, our God and our King. We're so excited to dive into this book together, and already we see so many glimpses of grace, so many glimpses of our own depravity, and so many ways that your grace has already overcome our own sinfulness. And we want to learn more. We want to grow more. We want to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. So, Father, we want to confirm these realities to our hearts by singing. And we want to sing to you, O great God, sovereign over us. Help us in our need, in our failings, in our depravity, in our inability. Help us. Occupy our lowly hearts. Own every aspect of it. Reign supreme as our sovereign ruler. You've conquered our sinful depravity with your grace, and we long to live in it and share it with others. So enable us to do that this day, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.